This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by Katie Bowles and James Forsyth. Boris Johnson has written to the Commons Speaker to propose some new rules for MPs around lobbying. Katie, can you give us the details? Yes, so today we've seen in the Chamber um, a debate which I think the government would rather have avoided. But after Christopher Chope objected when the House on Monday was trying to undo that botched attempt by the government to rewrite the standards rules, you saw MPs discuss the changes today. Now, Boris Johnson has tweeted saying that he's written to the common speaker to propose that the code of conduct for MPs is updated. And under his proposal, MPs who are prioritising outside interests over their constituents are investigated and appropriate punished. I think that's nothing new, really. You would expect that to happen, even if recently it was perhaps overlooked or interpreted in a different way. But I think the key bit here is um, number three, which is MPs are banned from acting as paid political consultants or lobbyists, because that is a change. And that is a change that is going to land badly for parts of the Tory party. James, about a quarter of Tory MPs had outside earnings. Is this third point, the banning of lobbying or consulting, going to hit them? So lobbying ministers was, was already against the rules. That's what Owen Patterson was found to have done. And it is worth reflecting that if the government had simply you know, accepted that report, hadn't tried to whip against it, I don't think that Boris Johnson would be in a position where he'd be having to do this. I don't think we would be into, we would be into our... I think we've now had a fortnight of Tory sleaze on the front page. Theresa May slamming Boris Johnson's government in the Commons today, giving the story more legs. And then this announcement ahead of Labour's opposition day vote tomorrow. I, I think the difficult question... I kind of wrote about this issue in my, in my politics column in the magazine this week. The difficult question is defining what a political consultant is and where is the line... I think this is where it's going to get tricky. I was talking to one Tory MP uh, earlier this week who has, you know, not a huge number of outside interests, but some, and they were suggesting, look, you know, if you do this, you're going to find a lot of people reclassifying their work as not political consultancy, but they're providing advice on the economic situation or the like. So I don't mean this is going to be the end of the matter in that the definitions aren't easy. I mean, the other thing interesting here is that, that Boris Johnson is saying that any second job should be within reasonable limits. This appears to be essentially saying that you know, doing what Geoffrey Cox has been doing is not considered to be reasonable because it takes you away from the Commons for too long. And I think this is going to exacerbate Boris Johnson's difficult relationship with former senior ministers. I think it's going to be two reasons why. First of all, the, it's former former ministers who tend to have these kind of jobs or the most extensive outside interests. And so they won't be particularly happy about this change. And the other reason why, I think, is that they will feel that this is all self-inflicted. David Cameron caused a lot of ill will when he handled the expenses scandal with essentially dishing out summary justice. But I think there was a broad acceptance in the Tory parliamentary party that something had to be done 
and that you know Cameron was no more at fault for the situation than anybody else. I mean, the difference this time around is those people who are hit by these changes will feel that they're only coming in because of this. And at the same time, you've got Keir Starmer saying, well, the Prime Minister still hasn't gone far enough. He wants even greater bans on second jobs, you know, company directorships and the like as well. So I, 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 think, I think that you know, Boris Johnson is in a difficult position here. And I think the challenge for him is it is going to worsen relations with a bit of the parliamentary party that he already finds it difficult to deal with. But I think if you see the kind of growing anger of a new intake of Tory MPs as this scandal has rumbled on, you also see that he had to do something. You know, you look at where public opinion is. You look at where a large chunk of another chunk of his parliamentary party is. And I think it would have been very difficult for him to have said to Tory MPs, oh, we just want you to sit on your hands tomorrow in Labour's vote on banning them second jobs. Katie, is this the beginning of the end of this Tory sleaze crisis? Theresa May, as James said, made some pretty incendiary comments in the Commons today and Christopher Chope, a Conservative MP, objected to the reversal of the government's initial plans yesterday. I think the government hopes this is the end, or at least um, I think what we're seeing is an attempt to draw the line over what's been a really bruising fortnight for the government. Um, Lots of blue and blue... An impact which, uh, you know, if you look at recent polling, it's not just one poll. There's clearly been a dip in support. And while you can say that's not purely down to Tory sleaze, um, it could be down to the vaccine bounce uh, fading away. It could be down to, you know, cost of living, lots of lots of things. It's timed for this. And therefore, I think it's become harder and harder for Downing Street to do what it really likes to do, which is say, this is a Westminster bubble story. No one cares. Journalists are obsessed with this for no reason. And I think that you're seeing now a move. And we've almost seen a slow transition in the sense that early on a the government and Boris Johnson thought it was a good idea it wasn't a big deal trying to change the rules and tie of Owen Patterson's case then you saw obviously a rollback because it didn't uh, work out as, as they planned and then actually as the days have gone on you've seen the government be a bit more apologetic and I think that the fact that Boris Johnson didn't do a full apology but he did acknowledge in that press conference on Sunday that he ultimately could have handled things better which I think for Boris Johnson is really as close to an apology as you're going to get and I think the fact they're now at that point does show that they are worried about it and this is an attempt to end that as James says I think that it will have some negative impact in terms of morale in certain parts of the Tory party who will blame Boris Johnson for this and then also the fact that the opposition politicians clearly want to still make hay, but the idea is you give something and then you can move on. James, the former Yorkshire cricket club player Azim Rafiq spoke before the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee of MPs today and he said he lost his career to racism and that English cricket is institutionally racist. How serious is this for Yorkshire Cricket Club and how serious is it for the sport more generally? I, I think it is very serious. I think the level of racial abuse that he is describing is shocking it does it does sound like something out of another time you know you know things it just kind of been told by senior players that all the players of Asian heritage should sit near the toilets being called elephant washers all sorts of kind of real stuff that sounds like just sounds like something from another age I think what what comes across from his evidence to MPs this morning was a kind of that, but there was there was clearly a a massive cultural issue that even those people who weren't engaging in this behaviour weren't 
calling it out and that the club could and should have done an awful lot more. I think the question now turns to how many other cricket clubs have this problem and I think the game has to sort it out. It is very, very hard to see a future for cricket as the national summer game if it can't resolve these kind of problems. And, you know, as somebody who loves cricket, I really hope that it can and does. And I think there are things that can be done. I think the impression you get of the of the of the, the England team at the moment is a very harmonious, you know, a harmonious multi-ethnic environment. Now, you could say, oh, no, you don't know that, you haven't been in the dressing room, but, you know, it does seem like that is a strength of the team. And I think, you know, so we just, we now kind of wait to see whether Yorkshire can sort it out. And also what happens to the ECB now in, you know, why did they not act earlier? And is it really realistic to leave policing all of this stuff? What what steps is the ECB prepared to take to try and now sort out the problem, not just at Yorkshire, but anywhere else where it really sort of said? And finally, Germany's energy regulator has suspended the approval process for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is going from Russia into Germany. Katie, Boris Johnson has had some words on this saying that Europe needs to be careful about being too dependent on Russia. How significant is this? I mean, it's suspended, so it's not a firm decision, but I think it does just show the pressure that is building in terms of geopolitics in terms of the role of Russia. And you see a few ways that concerns are growing over the role of Russia, whether it's Belarus, whether it's the Ukraine border and the build-up there. And I think that, in a way, Boris Johnson has been pressurising the EU to take more of a stand on this and you know not be an absent player. And I do think this aggression that we're seeing in various ways means that it's becoming more difficult if you're a European country that wants to you know have these relationships with Russia to, to justify it. And I think this is a sign of that. And James, how bad is this for Russia? Their economy isn't in a particularly good way. And it looks like they've got troops going towards Ukraine and have the eyes of the West on them in Belarus. They need this pipeline to go through too as well. Uh, I think what you see is, you know, the, the Germans are saying, so technically this is a kind of bureaucratic issue that it's holding it up. But I think it is, also, it is designed to send a message that if Russia carries on behaving in this way, don't think that Nord Stream 2 is going to get... Now, I think if you look at the number of states that feel most threatened by Russia, they have been calling for a long time for Nord Stream 2 to be dropped as an idea. And it is simply not sensible for Europe to make the kind of Russian energy weapon more potent than it already is, to put Russia in a situation where it's easier for it to kind of cut out Ukraine and cause its problems. I I think when you look at the current situation, that, that there is a big challenge for Europe coming down the pipeline, which is that, you know, you have, I, I mean, ever really since the deal was cut with Turkey on migration, you now see Lukashenko and Belarus trying to kind of actively, kind of weaponize the issue. Russia, which basically feels strong and emboldened when the when energy prices are high, and they are at the moment, they will be for some time. And I also think that you see a situation in the, in the Ukraine, which is kind of inherently volatile. And there is, you know, this informal Russian presence in eastern Ukraine of a kind of little green men variety. And, you know, everyone, I think, is quite aware of what happened with Crimea and whether Russia then tries to to formalise that. And I think the question is, you know, can you succeed in deterring Russia successfully? I think, you know, the reason the US warned so explicitly last week about the danger of the Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine was an attempt to say, like, don't think we haven't 
clock this. But I think there is a, there is a longer term challenge coming for Europe, which is you know, this US pivot to Asia will mean that you know, Europe is going to have to take more responsibility for its own security, the European members of NATO. How are they going to do that? Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then why not sign up to our Evening Blend email? You can get a rundown of all our top pieces from Coffee House and some analysis of the day's events from Isabel Hardman. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks again for listening and join us again tomorrow.